Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Just a few days ago, on uh, Saturday, June 12th, we marked a uh, difficult anniversary in uh, Georgia. It was one year ago on June 12th that Rayshard Brooks was uh, shot and killed by Atlanta police. An investigation continues in that case, but Rayshard Brooks' death uh, followed the deaths at police hands uh, by George Flo- of, jo- of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. And all of those events uh, began mobilizing people, as everyone knows. The summer of 2020 saw uh, uh, activists uh, flooding the streets, demanding social justice, uh, an end to systemic racism, and uh, at the same time that individuals were demanding that we look at the racism that this country has uh, dealt with for centuries, um, businesses were, for the first time in a very long time, it seemed to me, uh, looking much more deeply at what they, what role they played in perpetuating racism within their own companies and what kind of messaging they were sending out uh, beyond their own businesses to the rest of the community around them about the need for social change, racial justice, and the like. So here we are, uh, June 15th, 2021. It's been more than a year since corporations and other institutions started making big promises about how they plan to change. So today we're going to take a look at where we stand with uh, efforts to, uh, in fact, confront racism, uh, promote anti-racism programming uh, in, in, in institutions here in Georgia and across the country. And we've got a a really fine panel to do just that. I'm going to start by introducing uh, Suba Berry, who is uh, the CEO of Saramount. Um, Suba, the last time you were with us, the company was Working Mothers Media. I believe you're still doing Working Mothers Magazine. But, of course, part of Saramount's larger responsibility is that you, for many years, have been very involved in uh, promoting diversity in, in, in companies. You were the chief diversity officer at uh, Freddie Mac. You spent 20 years at Merrill Lynch, where you uh, were the global head of DNI. And um, you, at one point, had created a, an, a, an organization which looked at how wealth management businesses could uh, start uh, sent, getting resources out to communities that needed the most. Fair enough? Yeah, that's right. You pretty much summed it up. Um, one of the things, and, the, and again, the reason, the peg for this today is that your organization has produced a really, really, I think, important survey of pledges to progress. How have corporations around the United States done in acting on the pledges they made to deal with racism within their own ranks? to help their, their employees understand diversity, to diversify their workforces and the like. In a couple of minutes, we're going to look at that uh, study, some of the highlights of that study as we uh, uh, begin 
uh, talking about the uh, subjects for today's show. I'm really thrilled to be joined today, too, by Dr. Robert Franklin, professor of social ethics at the Candler School of Theology uh, at Emory University, um, former president of the Interdenominational Theological uh, Center. Uh, I think, Dr. Franklin, you have so many credentials that we could spend the half the show talking about, just as we could with Suba Berry. But let me say this. First of all, we've been hoping to have you on the show for a long time. And, uh, and I think one of the fairest things to say about you, in your years in Atlanta, um, and I'm sure beyond Atlanta, you have become a role model for so many of the people we talk to uh, who have uh, uh, gotten to know you over the years, had you as a teacher, uh, and, and so it's a real pleasure to have you on, not to mention the fact that uh, you grew up in Chicago with me. You went to Morgan Park High School on the far south side. I'm a Skokie boy, Robert. I grew up at uh, Niles East High School. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bill, and you are forgiven for that. <laughs> for the Skokie part of it, yes, you mean? <laughs> yes. But we meet here in Atlanta, and that's the important thing. That's exactly right. Well, thank you for being here. Um, we should also point out that you have a book that was just published last year that it's going to play a role in our conversation today, Moral Leadership, Integrity, Courage, and Imagination. And we're going to talk about how moral leadership plays a role in how we confront uh, racism in institutional uh, setting. So thank you again for being with us today. We're also joined today by uh, Kyle Stapleton, Senior Manager of Culture and Experience at Warner Media Studios. You also are on the board of an organization uh, that has uh, been come together to get marketing and advertising agencies to look at their responsibilities to diversify their workforces in the last year. You call it the A pledge, I believe, right, Kyle? Yeah, that's right. A, a for Atlanta and A for agencies. Um, and I want to talk to you about how well that, that work is going and what got you involved in that work to begin with. And uh, we're joined by a senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Matt Kempner. Matt, we're glad you're here because a couple of weeks ago, you did a pretty uh, uh, all-inclusive study of how Atlanta businesses, Metro Atlanta businesses, were doing in terms of promises they had made to uh, deal with racism, either in their own workplaces or to diversify the workplace. So thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. Glad to be on. Okay, let me start, if I may. Uh, Robert, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Hmm. And, and then I'd love to get everybody to uh, weigh in on this. Um, what changed, Robert? Why is it that we have known that there's a systemic racism in America for, for many, many years. We have in the past seen uh, terrible acts of violence against uh, black people by police. And yet last summer, suddenly something changed and the country paid notice in an in what seemed to me to be an entirely new way in the aftermath of the George Floyd shooting. What, why did that happen, do you imagine? Why are we now on a course, we're going to talk today about how successful it is, but why have we, are we on a course where people at least are paying more attention today? Great question, Bill. I think that we've been here before, 
And that was in 1955 with the murder of Emmett Till. And once again, an image convicted all decent and rational people. The image of a boy, a child, who was mutilated, murdered, tortured, and the grief of a mother and a church community. By the way, I was reared in Chicago, as you know, and uh, near the, the, the church where the funeral occurred. So, But uh, I think there was something of a shock to the heart and conscience of America. Things that we had been living with and heard about suddenly were focused with the video, the viral video of the George Floyd uh, execution. And for nine minutes and 29 seconds, America had to sit with the discomfort of knowing that uh, people whom we trust as uh, law enforcement, there are some of them who uh, are engaged in very bad behavior. And I was uh, really proud to see how America responded. Uh, we'll talk about how the corporate community responded, uh, certainly in the religious community, in, in colleges and universities around the nation. People were mobilized. A shock to the heart and conscience prompted people to act. And I think today's conversation is so important. One year later, so what? What difference and what remains to be done? Suba, uh, this is a, 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 a world that you have been a part of for a very long time. You've, you have, as I said in introducing you, you worked on diversity issues for Merrill Lynch, for Freddie Mac. You have been preaching about the need for businesses to understand the value of embracing diversity and uh, uh, of equity within their companies. So your take on what, it seems like in many ways, uh, Society is caught up with an issue that you've been involved with for a very long time. And I ask you the same question. Why now? Well, I, I actually completely agree that, um, you know, the pandemic in many ways with people uh, stuck in their homes uh, with, with uh, you know, no major league sports at that time, if you remember, uh, so, so watching television, but almost not being able to click away to something else. And, and this actually was in some ways forced upon people. And, and I believe that there was a bigger purpose to that. And in having to watch what happened, people had to then reconcile their own values and beliefs. And I'm hard-pressed to believe that any decent human being would not have been moved to take some kind of action as a result of it. And that included corporate leaders, people who could walk away to say, I'm focusing on my bottom line, I'm focusing on my next quarterly results, could no longer say that because their employees rose up to say, what do you think? My company, what are you saying? What are your values? What are your beliefs? Companies and their leaders could no longer just turn away to say, well, I have an obligation to my shareholders, so this is not something I can focus on. Yes, I will personally do something, but I can't use my corporate voice for this. That changed forever. And it is the young people with 75% of corporate uh, employees now, millennials or younger, you are starting to really look at their impact on how companies are stepping up. 
And so this change in many ways was a, a bit of a perfect storm, but could not have come at a better time. Uh, Kyle, I'm, I'm going to assume something that you can correct me if I'm wrong about, but based taking uh, what Suba uh, said and turning to you on this, my, my guess would be that at, at Warner, given your position, culture and experience at Warner Media, stu media Studios, working with advertising agencies, marketing agencies to try to get them to understand their need uh, to diversify, uh, you're dealing with a lot of those younger people and there uh, that Asuba is uh, talking about, I would imagine, yeah? Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's been an interesting year. I'm also a native Atlantan and a GSU grad. And so the combination of uh, creative employees, many of whom are very young and uh, status quo breaking, but also having a huge student population between GSU, Georgia Tech, Emory, the AUC, um, I like Suba. I'm very bullish on young people. I, you know, it, it reminds me a lot, and I wasn't around for it, but it reminds me a lot in spirit of the student movement of the '60s. I think we we owe a great deal of credit um, to to young people for for organizing and mobilizing and and really making their voices heard in a sustained way. Um, but it has been interesting in organizations uh, that status quo being broken of like, you know, you don't talk politics or religion at the dinner table. Uh, that's not a thing anymore. And I, I love what I've seen in, in the creative industry um, where the people who are in charge of telling the stories that people see themselves reflected in um, know that we have an obligation to do more, right? People, people will engage or disengage based on whether they see themselves in the stories that, uh, that are presented to them. And so I think we know implicitly that we, we have a deeper responsibility. And uh, it, you know, in some ways we've begun to meet that moment and in other ways we have a, we have a very long way to go. But, but I do credit frontline folks, marginalized voices, young people um, for leading that charge all the way. You know, Matt, um, I want to talk to you about this from a journalist perspective for just a moment. Um, it, you know, certainly the events, the police incidents, the awful shootings that we witnessed uh, played a role in uh, the activi activism that we saw. But it strikes me, it certainly was true here at Political Rewind, and I wonder in your thinking as a journalist if it played a role as well. And Suba kind of uh, referred to this. We were living in a pandemic where we recognized it, the pandemic showed us uh, the terrible gaps uh, in, uh, in, in those who have and those who have not. We know that health outcomes for uh, minority people were far worse than, than uh, white Americans. Um, so we understand how we, we really grew in our understanding during the pandemic of the divides that the coronavirus awakened us to. And then, of course, the shootings themselves did the same thing. When all of this began, did it, it occur to you, as it did to us, that we'd better start spending more time talking about issues of systemic racism and diverse, the need uh, for more inclusive societies? And how did that affect you as a reporter? Well, yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I, obviously, Lots of people, from uh, from CEOs to uh, to uh, frontline workers and reporters, were were horrified by the events that they saw um, with uh, with some of the killings, and and uh, sort of that that sort of shook many of us. I'm 
I think. And many of us, just like everybody else, were out talking to neighbors and others about um, what we were confronted with. And I'm sure that worked into our coverage. Obviously, there was a tidal wave of news last year. It's really never stopped, unlike anything in my uh, 30-plus years of journalism, um, jumping from from huge issues um, from the pandemic and others. But certainly, uh, race became a crucial part of our coverage. But frankly, it was a crucial part of, part of our coverage uh, long before that. That just sort of stepped it up because it was so much a part of uh, uh, everyday Americans' um, daily lives in more direct ways than they could avoid. You know, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you're right. we too had, had covered race for a long time, but suddenly we saw the urgency of it in a new way. Sue, but let's get right to your survey because there's so much to mine here. Uh, if you don't mind my reading uh, from your uh, report, uh, just a little bit, you say in the introduction, there's been a sea change in corporate America in the past year. Companies are pledging to aggressively fight racism in their organizations and externally. They're putting money, people, knowledge, and their reputations on the line. Um, and you go on from there, and you, you say, after having surveyed, what, more than 2,000 individuals and in companies around the country, uh, that you're happy to report there has been some progress. But the fact of the matter is uh, there's been some disturbing results from your surveys as well. Can we talk about what you see as some of the real highlights of this? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I have to tell you what, what's interesting about it is we didn't go to the corporations. We went to employees, and yes. it was a wide sample across the country. So it wasn't just to companies who sponsored us, et cetera. So it was, it was a a broad national survey. What we found was, um, you know, in terms of fighting systemic racism, 83% of the employees are very committed to fighting racism within their companies. So this is, this is a statement from employees themselves. So that is one. The second one was, you know, when we looked at it, all uh, employees, it didn't matter, irrespective of their race and ethnicity, seemed to have that commitment with, of course, black employees showing the highest levels of commitment. There was a tiny minority, about 3% of them who said, we won't fight racism. We don't want to do it. The only reason I call out 3% is, you know, almost you think about it, shouldn't be statistically significant. And yet this 3% is very, very vocal. And they are primarily white men, generally older. So that's sort of on one side in terms of who's going to fight it. The, the big part of it, that the thing that challenged us the most was even though 95% of senior leaders in organizations said that they were committed to fighting it, here's the, the dramatic ahas for me. One third of them felt that they were being forced to comment on it, do something about it. While I think about that as I'm not ready yet, I'm being pushed to do something right now. So about a third of them, a full third, is saying I'm being forced to, to, to actually say something about it now while I'm not ready. Okay? But even worse than that, 79% of them 
feel that DEI efforts are overblown. That to me is truly concerning because that means a good percentage of them are waiting for this to pass. That, that's exactly the way I looked at those numbers, Robert. Um, and we're talking now about essentially C-suite executives, mm-hmm. the leaders of uh, businesses around the country. And, and if you have um, 33% of them, fully a third of them who say, yeah, I, I think it's important to fight racism, but the fact of the matter is I'm being forced to do it, that's bad enough, as Suba points out. But to have almost 80% of them say it's out of the, this DEI stuff is blown out of proportion, uh, th- that does uh, tend to worry us in terms of thinking about how, how meaningfully uh, 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 sustainable this can be. You know, Andrew Young, former mayor of the city and ambassador and extraordinary uh, assistant to Martin Luther King, has been doing something interesting for decades. And after reading uh, Suba's report, I now sort of get it. And that is, he's been trying to foster friendships between senior level black and white executives and increasingly uh, the Asian uh, and, and Hispanic uh, leaders here, certainly in metro Atlanta. And saying, we need to build relationships, relationships of trust, because in that context, people are more likely to be open to uh, education and to, uh, to embracing these uh, what ought to be self-evident uh, values that all people are equal, have value, can contribute to the good of the company, it makes for a better company. You know, there are all sorts of strong business reasons for doing uh, this work of increasing the uh, level of comfort of all of the employees in your, in your company. But um, Andy Young has said, if we build these friendships and relationships, we can go further. And so I think that that's something we ought to think about, is to the extent to which our companies, your companies, are fostering those kinds of trust-building opportunities. But ultimately, Andy Young, John Bryant, mentioned in Matt's wonderful article on June 4th, a number of key leaders, and I think it's in in this report, suggest that we have to take seriously what's happening with the people, uh, increasing diversity at all levels of the organization. Secondly, Philanthropy, what are these companies doing with their money? Who are they supporting and giving to? And one of the wonderful things that emerged a year ago is billions of dollars pledged, pledged, not fully delivered yet, but pledged to uh, civil rights organizations, groups that are doing the heavy lifting, including some HBCUs, money given to the historically black colleges and universities. There are about 105 of those, and I was privileged to lead uh, pres- uh, service president of Morehouse College. So it's, it's philanthropy, but then the third is the purchasing. Are these companies supporting uh, black and women-owned businesses and enabling them to get into the game with these large corporations? So uh, the people, the philanthropy, and the purchasing, and my good friend Melody Hobson, co-president of Aerial Investments in Chicago, emphasizes this point at all of our corporate meetings. Um, so thank you for that. Kyle, let me, let's build on all of that. Um, I want to go back to this. I feel the focus and attention of diversity, equity, and inclusion is blown out of proportion. Uh, that, that 79% of C-suite execs who say that. Um, I, maybe I'm wrong, 
but that strikes me as the epitome of white privilege. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know we're on the radio, so people can't see that uh, I, I am showing up to the party as a cis white male. Um, but I'm also a young punk rocker, so I am hopeful that all of those guys will be out of those leather chairs soon. Um, and it, it, and it's going to happen through a couple of things, right? I think Dr. Franklin was right on the money about um, relationships and purchasing. Uh, you know, people people walk with their dollar, and uh, employees can increasingly have a say in um, what kind of vendor and agency relationships uh, their company has. And I think that this idea that you can just go back to, you can put the genie back in the bottle and go back to worrying about yourself and your shareholders and the bottom line, um, it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of how the world works and, and where we're headed. Um, and, and frankly, how to get along in a society, right? That shows kind of a zero sum ideal. Um, when really the more people you include, the more the pie grows, um, there's lots of opportunities. So like take our industry, the entertainment industry, for example, when more people get to tell their stories, you have an opportunity to attract more people and more eyeballs. And I think you see that, I think, you know, I'm biased, but HBO does this better than just about any brand in, in the world. Right. And we, and we see the returns on that. Um, I think you'll increasingly start to see that in more conservative industries where with sustained pressure and vocalization from frontline employees, um, those relationships, those purchasing uh, types of decisions, suppliers, the uh, up and down the supply chain, things will change, but only with sustained pressure. Uh, Matt, give us a sense of and paint a picture uh, of the, what's happening with Atlanta businesses, uh, as you discovered in the research you did for your big article on. Well, certainly a number of particularly big companies um, started getting involved or speaking out very directly within days of, of some of the marches and uh, some of the videos, and they started uh, – talking about some concrete steps that they would take. Now, this didn't include every company, um, and it wasn't just big companies that did speak out, by the way. It was small companies uh, got involved, too, and um, I, I think a, a number of business leaders were, were shaken by some of the things that they saw. But the, kind, the levels of promises that were made varied widely. Uh, companies like Coke and Delta... Uh, ended up coming up with a litany of things that they said they would do. Many of the things, issues that uh, folks had just chatted about, uh, from supplier diversity to making sure that their very most senior ranks uh, mirrored the populations uh, that they were in in, the, in their communities. And, and so there were many people who, who talked about those kinds of things, but there were also people who, who didn't, speak about a lot of uh, specifics. Uh, some talked about uh, um, town hall meetings and other stuff. I think at first, many companies were just trying to figure out what what they could do, what they should do. Um, and and to the point of uh, the, the survey results, some certainly knew that they already had diversity programs in place and probably had thought, well, we, we got that covered. Remember, Coke, by the way, um, Coca-Cola, based in Atlanta, 
more than 20 years ago was the subject of a class action lawsuit in which uh, pushed for some real change. The company committed to real change. Um, and then 20 years later, they found, you know what, we we don't actually have the diversity we expected or thought we should have at our highest ranks. So it's very much a work in progress. And there will be big questions about how resolute companies are in sticking with this over a longer term. You know, I, I uh, wanted to follow up on something that Kyle said uh, when he was talking about the power of media and what they can do. Uh, most recently, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie In the Heights. Uh, and, you know, obviously, Lin-Manuel Miranda is beloved by everybody. He's Mr. Hamilton. Um, and, and yet he got called out for not having enough uh, Afro-Latino representation in that movie where most of the characters were lighter skinned. And, and he has written about it, apologized for it. Do you think he'll make that mistake ever again? And this is what is amazing about what's happening is we are holding people's feet to the fire on these things. We're not saying, oh, we love Lin-Manuel Miranda. He can't do anything wrong. So we'll sort of give him a free pass for having missed out on this. Not anymore. Not anymore. And this is why things are changing in this country is because even the brightest and best and the most beloved are getting called out when they make mistakes and they can only be held accountable for how they respond. And he responded magnificently, acknowledging that that was a myth, that he should have done better and that he will do better. And that is really where, whether it is going to be Lin-Manuel Miranda in, in, uh, uh, in the entertainment side or whether it's corporate leaders, the ability for them to own up to their shortcomings, to be vulnerable enough and to show the empathy is what is going to ultimately build trust, which is what the point you made, Dr. Franklin, about trust being at the foundation of being able to move forward and make progress. Well, it strikes me, Robert, that that's an example of moral leadership right there. The ability to say, yeah. I am wrong. Yeah. I was wrong. I have got to do better. I acknowledge my mistakes. I love the point. Moral leaders are people who invite us to become better versions of ourselves and hold us accountable for it. And in my little book, I argue that, you know, certainly individuals are, can be moral leaders. I mean, one thinks of today, my students name Anthony Fauci, uh, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, Malala Yousafzai, uh, Greta Thunberg, all of these as young moral leaders on our scene today. But institutions can be moral leaders precisely along the lines. And that's what I love about this report that Sarah Mount has produced and, and Suba's representing to us. People should take a look at the final pages. There are a number of recommendations that I hope leaders and companies will, will embrace because we need those institutions and those leaders who set a tone at the top. I talk about in my classes at Emory, it's important for the leaders who set a tone at the top. That's the CEO and the board of directors. But then we talk about the mood in the middle. How are the middle-level executives doing? And one of the things that have happened here is that senior CEOs ask their black and, and brown employees in the middle, uh, how are you doing? How are you experiencing this racial justice and reckoning moment? And they said, we're miserable. We're traumatized. We're not well. 
And those, many of those CEOs says, gee, I, I can't ignore this. We have to do something. So it's the mood in the middle, but never forget the buzz at the bottom. And we need to pay wow. attention to what people are saying by walking around in the company and paying attention. You have set me up for a conversation that I really was uh, looking to have as we move forward with the show. I got to get to a break, but when we come back, uh, Kyle, I want to get you into this conversation because you do represent some of the younger people who are encouraged by the fact that we're making some progress, but there are some data in Suba's report that we really should uh, dig into that has some warning signs about even how younger people might be Uh, seeing how everything is unfolding. So let's do a break right now, and we'll be back with more in a minute. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Sam Bermistas, why don't we put up a link to uh, Suba Berry's report on our social media? Because uh, I think uh, Robert Franklin's right. We should give everybody a chance to look at the conclusions he reaches. Um, uh, Kyle, as I said, I wanted to start with you, but I, I want to take a page from uh, Suba Berry's uh, report on the, the pledge to pro- progress in terms of uh, racial inclusiveness, diversity, training, and the like uh, in businesses around the country. It, she, the, the report concludes that employees of color are less likely to feel included compared to white colleagues, even given uh, all of the emphasis on, uh, on diversity training in, in companies today. So that um, uh, black, black employees are, you know, they say they feel less welcome and included within their team than white or Hispanics. And the same goes for ideas, le- less likely to be heard uh, within the team, feel a little bit less likely to share uh, contrary ideas with the team. Do you think there's an age uh, difference there? We don't see this broken down by age, but do you think younger people are uh, uh, have a different sense of race and the barriers between races than uh, we old old folks like me? Uh, unfortunately, no. Plus, plus, got change, right? Oh, okay. uh, I I think that people are experiencing people throughout their lives have experienced racial bias, um, racial aggression, generational trauma handed down. Um, I, you know, I think some things are better, but until they're great, they're not great, you know? Um, and I think one of the, one of the main things is when you start to parse out data within an organization or an industry, you see that um, people of color don't advance at the same rates. They don't matriculate through companies into senior roles. So you don't see as many, uh, you don't see as much racial diversity generally after that middle level that Dr. Franklin referred to. It's really like director level title at many corporations and above, certainly VP level contract senior executive, you see a lot less racial diversity, a great deal more gender diversity than you used to even 10 or 20 years ago, but racial diversity is still certainly a long, long way to go. And that has a ripple effect on the psyche of an organization at a team or a macro organizational level um, where people don't have advocates. They um, face small moments in meetings and large moments in annual reviews where things could go one way or another. And generally for people from marginalized communities, they, they go the less good way, right? Um, and so for, for people who look like me and for people who have a great 
Um, yeah, Suva just said in the chat, if you can't see it, you can't be it. I mean, truly representation matters inside of these organizations. And so we need more allies, especially if you, if you are, uh, if you are a straight white male, um, you, you have it on your shoulders and, and you should really want to, frankly, any good leader worth their stripes should see a moment, meet a moment and, and do the right thing to, to transcend the moment and, and be a leader in the moment. So I think you can be an ally by sponsoring people of color, seeing to their advancement, learning about the challenges that they face that are extraordinary, um, you know, in addition to the normal challenges that people trying to climb the ranks of an organization face. Um, and ultimately, it'll make you more empathetic and a better leader. Like I said earlier, the pie grows when you do that work. Matt, um, we have seen an example recently here in Atlanta of what happens when uh, businesses do try to engage in uh, dealing with, with politics, especially. We know the pushback that Republicans gave when a number of companies, Coca-Cola Company, Delta Airlines, uh, spoke out against the Georgia election law. Uh, and, and Republicans uh, s said their businesses have no role in politics, uh, that uh, employees shouldn't be forced to uh, tolerate the political position that a business uh, takes. And, and that is a debate that certainly spills over into the whole question of anti-racism, diversity training. We already know that there are Republicans who are pushing in the 2022 election cycle to demonize diversity uh, DEI uh, uh, programs. So we're, we do see there's pushback to some of this. Yeah, right. There, there is um, there are some landmines that uh, companies face as they delve into this issue, depending on how deep they go into it. There's a different companies have um, different levels of engagement that they're going to have. Uh, for many, it is mostly uh, internal uh, that they're looking internally. But there are some that are getting involved uh, again or more forcefully in an external way, and they can pay the price for it. Frankly, companies are going to pay the price for it either way. If they have a big public consumer-focused brand, they face uh, boycotts or other issues from other sides. Coca uh, Home Depot uh, currently is facing um, uh, a boycott uh, for, from people who believe that they should have spoken out. Uh, on the voting law changes in Georgia, um, uh, which some um, thought were uh, disenfranchised um, uh, minority communities in particular. Uh, but at, at the same time, you know, Delta Airlines, after speaking out, it, it got uh, punched in the mouth or uh, essentially by uh, state legislators in Georgia who uh, tried to take away one of their big tax breaks. So there's... It, it's, this is fraught with challenges for companies, and everybody's got a different definition of what are the messy details of what companies should get involved in. Suba, do you think that um, the political pushback that's really part of, a, of an election effort by Republicans on things like diversity training, uh, on, on things like critical race theory teaching, uh, have the potential to... Uh, lead to setbacks in some of the work that corporations and institutions are doing? I believe that that is a real threat. 
Um, and I want to go back to what Kyle talked about when he said uh, that that young people are sort of experiencing some of the same challenges. Just the passage of time has not changed that. But young people are doing something that the generation before them did not do, and they are voting with their feet. They walk out of companies mm -hmm. uh, and, and they go seek other organizations whose values are aligned with theirs. And with this war for talent that we're in, everybody is talking about the talent shortage. And I just don't mean in the hospitality industry, there is a talent shortage. We are, our early research about five years ago showed that there was going to be about a 23 million person talent shortage over the course of the next decade. We are there. We are living it right now. So if companies don't recognize that if they can't find a way to align their values and beliefs with those of their employees, their employees will walk away and go to other companies that are aligned. So I just wanted to comment on that. The other piece of it is uh, something that um, the CEO of Ben & Jerry's, who was on our advisory council, by the way, his name is Matthew McCarthy, very courageous leader. And he said, I have to look at my career and look at all of those things that have enabled me to get this corner office. I have to unlearn them because those are the very things that are keeping people of color out of this corner office. So he had to come to terms with his own white privilege and what that has done to enable him, things that he took for granted that that allyship would be there, the mentorship would be there, the sponsorship would be there, the opportunities would be there, the development and training would be there. All of those things that he took for granted that as a white, bright young man, he, had, he was afforded that which someone of color or someone of another gender is not. He said, I have to find ways to unlearn that and find a way that can be equal, equitable to everybody. It was a powerful statement. Uh, How many of our senior leaders are going to be willing to say that and do that? Uh, yes, and as you point, as your survey shows, it is messages, the messages that come from top leaders in companies are the most important in terms of whether the other employees of the company will embrace uh, the uh, messages of anti-racism and the like, right? That's right. Um. Robert, I, let me. Th you're welcome to weigh in on any of this, of course. But but let me throw something out to you that I thought about when I was preparing for this show. Um, we talked a little bit before about um, how how companies and other institutions have to think about uh, larger issues than the bottom line. They've got to think about their place in the universe around them. Are they working to to uh, promote moral values, diversity, and the like? And I couldn't help but think, Robert, about what's going on right now at the University of North Carolina, where uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the creator of the 1619 Project, she's a McCarthy Genius recipient. She's uh, been praised across the country for this remarkable project in the New York Times looking at the history of black people in the country and, and how systemic racism has held them back, she has been denied tenure, even though she signed a contract to teach at UNC, because there are members of the board who feel uncomfortable with uh, the 1619 Project and the values it promotes. And I just bring that up. It's just one example of how far we really still have to go 
to uh, uh, make an impact on, on the boards of, of universities, as an example, the boards of businesses as well. But certainly the University of North Carolina would like to project an image as a progressive organization. This doesn't help. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminds me of the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer who once said that all change, all new ideas undergo three uh, uh, moments. Uh, first, they are ridiculed. Secondly, they are violently opposed. And third, they are accepted as self-evident. And I think that that's a moment, that's a phase, a change process we're going through in society today as people are sort of creating uh, CRT, critical race theory, as something, you know, a thing that uh, they have to uh, argue against, when in fact I think the plea is to simply tell the truth of American history, deal with the facts and the evidence. As uh, President John Adams said, uh, we, we, we can't deny what the facts are. So stay with that rather than politicizing this information. I think that's part of what's happening at UNC and other places. And I hope that thoughtful, enlightened politicians, there are a few still out there, will just tell the truth about the fact that we need to tell the truth about where we have been as a nation, where we need to go, and to affirm the common decency and the values that, that unite us as we the people. Okay, I've got to get to our final break of the show because I keep putting it off because I'm so interested in what you're all saying. Let's get it out of the way and come back with a little more on Political Rewind. Suba Berry, as we were getting set to do this show just before it started, you and I both noticed a big announcement from PwC, which is a tax basically a tax consulting uh, business uh, trying to help companies understand how to deal with their, their tax structures and that sort of thing. But they announced a huge initiative. We don't, we don't have a lot of time, but briefly tell us why this, in fact, may be uh, the future in terms of really, really being willing to work towards inclusiveness and company responsibilities to the late greater world. So the, Tim Ryan, who is the U.S. chair of uh, PwC, said they are announcing a once-in-a-generation strategy change aimed at really, uh, you know, stakeholder capitalism. It's something that I've spoken about, which said says that companies have not only an obligation to their shareholders, but to their stakeholders, which include their employees, their communities, their vendors. It includes uh, even the environment. So. It's a, it's a much broader set of constituencies to whom they are answerable to, not just shareholders. So what Tim Ryan says is they're going to be focusing on two issues going forward. One is trust, and the other one is sustained outcomes. So when you think about trust, he says expectations are going higher as it relates to ethics, worker pay, worker safety, DEI, ESG, data use, artificial intelligence, ethics, etc., Questions like, are you paying your fair share of taxes? Are you moral, not just legal? And they say they are going to help their clients build the culture, the systems, the processes, the checks and balances, and ultimately the reporting all around trust. Kyle, that's the sort of thing, the, the blueprint for how big companies can truly affect change. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and I think Suba talking about the network effect, you know, going beyond individual companies into entire industries and uh, geographic locales is, is kind of the exact reason we started the A pledge, which you mentioned at the top of the show. So um, the A pledge is the Atlanta advertising and marketing agency industries. Uh, contribution, trying to make a meaningful contribution to the eradication of systemic racism by having um, the diversity inside these agencies at all levels match the diversity of Atlanta. Because our hypothesis is that um, if you if you match the city that you serve and draw a workforce from, um, you'll you will ultimately solve or or make inroads into uh, a number of problems, both from a, from a company perspective and, and from um, a locality perspective. Um, Matt, we're starting to run short on time, but can we assume that the AJC is going to continue to be looking at how companies do, in fact, live up to promises uh, to deal with uh, anti-racism efforts, diversifying the workforces, getting better supply chain diversity and the like? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to keep on that. But we're also going to be interested in trying to figure out ways to find out what workers think and how their views shift over time. And that'll be a harder thing to figure out. But surveys like uh, what Suha did are, are important in sort of understanding some of that. Dr. Franklin, you are the ordained minister in the, on the panel today, and so I turn to you for the very last words with the just two minutes we have left. Are you hopeful? Are we I, I all am, moving in the right direction? I am hopeful. I see it uh, a year ago this time. Just remember, there were all-white communities in Midwestern America that were out carrying Black Lives Matter signs, and they were concerned. And that showed a kind of decency and a goodness in America I think is there, and I hope we'll all remember the wise words of Rabbi Maimonides, the world is equally balanced between good and evil, your next act will tip the scale. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Suba Berry, uh, again, with just a few seconds left, did your survey leave you feeling hopeful about the way in which American business is responding to what I think is fair to call a crisis? Well, I would, uh, I would tell you that I am uh, cautiously optimistic, and I'm hoping that whatever new normal we create is going to be an improvement on what was, and we can only get better from there. Suba Berry, thank you so much for being with us. We'll put up the uh, survey on our social media sites. Dr. Robert Franklin, Kyle Stapleton, Matt Kepner, we are completely out of time for today's show, but thank you all so much for a uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, we're back again, of course, with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy. Uh, keep a mask with you and wear it where you think it's absolutely necessary. But you know what? If you haven't been vaccinated yet, uh, you don't need to, you, you need to worry more about masks than those of us who have been. So go out and get a shot and that'll make things all better. See you all tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.